Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, a replica of the home where civil rights activist Harry T. Moore was killed by a bomb is now part of the Moore Cultural Complex in MIMS. Of course, I helped my dad a lot with the work that he was doing with the NAACP and the Progressive Voters League. We'll hear the story of a family who lived on a wooden bridge over the Indian River in the 1940s and visit the Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine. I used to love to wander about the battlements of the old castle and climb about the guns that faced out to sea. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth his voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say. Freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for freedom never dies. It happened in Florida, the land of flowers. It was on a Christmas night. Men came stealing through the orange grove. Men of hate carrying dynamite. It was to a little cottage. The family, the name of Moore. At the window hung sprigs of holly, a fine wreath at the door. It was on a Christmas evening and the family prayers were said. Mother, father, daughter, and grandmother went to bed. The father's name was Harry Moore of the NAACP. He fought for the life for us to live. Black folk must be free. It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth. His voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say. Freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for freedom never dies. The Ballad of Harry Moore by Langston Hughes tells the story of slain civil rights activist and educator Harry T. Moore, who was killed when a bomb exploded under his home in Mims, Florida, on Christmas night, 1951. His wife Harriet died nine days later from injuries sustained in the blast. The Moore's only surviving daughter, Juanita Evangeline Moore, arrived at the home site from Washington, D.C., two days after the bombing. Photographs from the Florida State Archives show what she saw that day, a home so severely damaged by the bomb that it was knocked off of its foundation. A replica of the Moore family home now sits on the site where the original family home once stood. I spoke with Evangeline Moore while sitting inside the newly constructed replica of her family home. One can only assume that as Ms. Moore looks around the reconstructed house that it brings mixed emotions for her. Yes, but mostly pleasant ones because uh, it looks so much nicer 
I remember when I came home uh, that Christmas, I arrived on the 27th of December, and one of the first stops we made after the announcement was made by my uncle at the train station that the house had been bombed, my dad was dead, and my mother was in the hospital. I did come back to the house. Uh, it was, I can't, I can't explain the feeling that I had. I walked in the front door, and as you can see, I could see my parents' bedroom. Big hole, and the the mattress and the bed and everything was in that hole, and parts of the ceiling rafters was all there. Um, I walked to the dining room, looked in our bedroom, my sister's in my bedroom, and I saw that uh, her, her bed was really under the double windows in there. Um, it was filled with just finely slivered glass. And I knew at that moment that had I been home, she would have been dead also, so I, I couldn't go any further. So to come back and see it looking very much like the house was, it's very comforting. After seeing her family home nearly destroyed, Evangeline Moore never returned. There are photographs of Evangeline Moore as a young girl in and around her family home, sitting on the front porch and at the dining room table. Now that the replica of her family home is complete, she says it allows her to focus on pleasant memories. I don't know really how to explain, but there was so much love and 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 just just a house full of love. And of course, I helped my dad a lot with the work that he was doing with the NAACP and the Progressive Voters League. My sister was an avid reader, and she took very little part in any of the work that Dad was doing. She, she was always in a corner somewhere reading a book. Uh, but the, the, the love between my sister and me was something that was very, very unusual, even though we were very different in nature. Um, and my mother, I mean, she was, she was an absolute angel. And I, I can just remember the, the love and the warmth that surrounded me while I was here. And my, my parents were very affectionate, both to my sister and me and to themselves, because I remember oftentimes just we were walking through the house, and I, I could actually see my parents in any room in the house, and they would be embracing. And I thought, that's something that doesn't happen too often. But it has, it has gone with me throughout my lifetime. I was never fortunate to have that type of relationship. But I remembered the, the love and warmth that I felt in this house and the caring that um, coming back and seeing it very much like it was is, is a tremendous, tremendous uh, joy and a comfort to me. An antique typewriter sits on a small table next to where Evangeline Moore and I spoke. Harry T. Moore was a prolific letter writer, calling for investigations into lynchings in Florida and working for the NAACP. 
While he traveled around the state registering African Americans to vote and encouraging membership in the NAACP, he did his writing from his home in Mims. Evangeline Moore says she didn't realize the significance of his work at the time. No, I didn't. He was just, to me, he was just daddy. And I knew, I mean, I knew that he was doing some work, but I didn't recognize the the tremendous effect that it was having on citizens of America until after he was dead and I was, you know, after actually after Ben Green wrote his book, it was only then that I realized the magnitude of the work that my dad had done. Although I helped him because I can remember running off sample ballots on the ditto machine and addressing envelopes and licking envelopes and licking stamps and, of course, always trailing behind my dad when he would go to the post office to mail them. I knew he was doing something that was very important, but um, I just didn't at that time realize exactly the magnitude of what he was doing. Next to the Moore Home Replica is a modern civil rights museum with public presentation space and plenty of room for outdoor events. Bill Gary is president of the Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Cultural Complex. The process basically involved, if we go all the way back to uh, about 1986, uh, began with a conversation between uh, T.H. Poole uh, who was then president of the Florida State Conference of NAACP, and uh, Truman Scarborough, who was the newly elected uh, county commissioner for District 1, uh, in reference to purchasing uh, the home site of the Moors uh, uh, in this area. Um, of course, at that time, we didn't know who owned the property and where it was located and so forth. There, So there was a process of going through finding, going through the um, um, title, you know, for property records there to ultimately find that this property was owned uh, by the Mack brothers. And then there was a process of going through negotiating the purchase price for it and all that. Once that was done, uh, a committee was formed. It was called a Home Site Development Committee. And the county um, formed this committee to get input from the uh, surrounding community as to what uh, this home site and the park would, would be. Um, there was a, a number of meetings over a couple of years there. And so a general concept was developed that they would have a cultural center. Uh, and at some later date, um, the actual house replica would be built. Now that the Moore Home replica has been built, Evangeline Moore hopes that people who visit can get a broader perspective on what her family was like. Well, I hope they can feel the the warmth and the love that most people, when uh, our parents and my sister and I lived here, experienced when they came in. It, it was always such a cordial uh, surrounding. And most people really loved my mom, my dad, my sister, and me. And it was a joy for them to be able to come. And my, I remember my mother used to have our pastor to dinner 
almost every Sunday that he was in town. I think we had church like every other Sunday, and he always looked forward to coming to our house for dinner. My mother was an excellent cook. She really was. And there, there was a feeling, just, just a feeling, that I have never experienced anywhere else in my life. The story of Harry T. Moore has gained much more recognition over the past decade, beginning with the Ben Green book, Before His Time, The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore, America's First Civil Rights Martyr, and the PBS documentary, Freedom Never Dies. Annual recognitions include a memorial at the Moore Grave Site and the Moore Heritage Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Although all this is a step in the right direction, Evangeline Moore says her parents still don't get the recognition they deserve. They deserve a whole lot more. They really do. It, he, he has not really been given the recognition that he should have, particularly here in the United States. This is a start, but he, I mean, he should be... He should be far, I mean, there should be stories about him even above Martin Luther King because Dad laid the foundation for what Martin Luther King ultimately was able to do himself. And I think it's a shame that uh, every time Black History Week, um, a month and all this stuff, Dad should be at the top of the list when you start talking about people who gave their lives so that black people could have equal rights. While there is still much to be done with the annual Moore Heritage Festival and other efforts, Bill Gary says awareness about the Moors is growing. There has uh, been uh, quite a bit of progress along those lines here uh, in recent years. Uh, uh, one of the things that I think um, is going to help us tremendously um, is uh, we happen to have an opportunity to meet with Dr. Lonnie Bunch, who is director of the National African American Museum of History and Culture in Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian, uh, we gave him a presentation about the Moors and asked um, for his consideration in including the Moors in the new uh, National Museum that's going to be built on the Washington Mall. Uh, he was receptive to that idea and uh, over some months of correspondence has assured us that the Moors would have a place. Uh, our task now is to develop uh, a appropriate presentation uh, that would go into that space uh, in the new National Museum there. Young African Americans today are looking at race much differently than previous generations. Evangeline Moore says that having an African American president demonstrates limitless opportunities, but that young people need to remember that the work of her father and others made Barack Obama's presidency possible. I'm just so elated uh, that President and Mrs. Obama are in the White House with their daughters, and um, there are a lot of observations that I make daily. Um, the, the, the relationship and the love and affection that I can see, which transpires between President Obama and his wife and his two little girls, reminds me a lot 
of the relationship that my mother, my father, my sister, and I had. The Moore Family Home Replica is located at the Moore Cultural Complex on Freedom Avenue in Mims, just north of Titusville in North Brevard County. So if you see our Harry Moore walking on a Christmas night, don't you fear and run and hide, he has no dynamite. For in his heart is only love for all the human race. All he wants is for each of us to have our rightful place. And this he says, our Harry Moore, as from the grave he cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say. Freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, find books about Florida, become a member of the Florida Historical Society, and much more. Janie Gould has the unique story of a family who lived in a house perched on a wooden bridge over the Indian River in the 1940s. An industrial accident in Jacksonville caused a heavy equipment operator named Ben Wood to lose his right arm. He also lost his job and his home, and his wife died. Later, he remarried, and in 1938 moved to Vero Beach. He found a job running the hand-cranked draw span on the town's wooden bridge. He and his family lived in a little house on the bridge. Charlotte Devane is his daughter. How did he get that job? My understanding is he actually voted for the right governor, which I think was Spessard to Holland, and Dr. Harrell was an old doctor, family doctor in Vero, that helped him go through the procedure that he got the job on the bridge. In other words, it was a political job? It really was. Actually, the first four years, he never left the bridge. He was there seven days a week, 24 hours a day. The barber even came to our house to cut his hair. But the next election day, the state sent someone out to relieve him so he could go to town and vote. <laughs> to make sure that Spessard Holland was returned to office? I guess so. I was really too young to know. I was and to make sure that his job lasted. I'm sure that's what it was all about. You mean your father stayed on the bridge for four years. Talk about cabin fever. Really? What was the house on the bridge like? It was just a two-bedroom house. Small rooms at that. Actually, no indoor plumbing. The plumbing was inside, but it was not indoor plumbing. Okay. <laughs> there was one faucet in the house. And, and it was in the middle of a wooden bridge in the middle of the Indian River. Right along the channel. Did it ever feel kind of scary out there? I think I was too young to know, but even today, I cannot get in water over my head without having a panic attack because the channel was about 18 feet deep. I grew up with the words ringing in my head, don't get near the edge, that water's over your head. Did anybody ever fall in? My brother and my sister did. My brother got out before we even knew what the big splash was, and when my sister fell in, a friend of the family was standing right there, and they were down on a lower step. She just reached in the water and pulled her back up. Did you learn to swim in the river? Oh, yeah. What was it like living out there? It was very isolated. We didn't even own a car until I was in the 10th grade at school. How did you get around? If someone came across the bridge that daddy knew and we were wanting to go into town, he would stop them and ask them if they'd give us a ride. Or, as 
as we got a little older, we thought nothing in the world of walking that two and a half miles into town on Saturday afternoon to go to the movies. In the winter, if it was dark when we got out, there was a taxi service right across the street from the theater that she would take us home, and Daddy would give her her 50 cents for taking us home. And your mother had to go shopping. There was a fish camp down on the east end of the bridge. They had a phone. Mama would give me the list, and I would go down there and call in the order to Cox's Grocery Store, and he would deliver our groceries. Your father was really on duty all the time. Were there boats in the middle of the night? Oh, yes. He would have to get up, get enough clothes on to go outside and open the draw. There were gates at either end of the draw, and he would take care of those even at night. But during the day, if we were home, the gate nearest the house was mine, and the gate across the draw was my brother's, and we knew to go close those gates to stop the traffic. How did your father manage to do his job with just one arm? Well, he was an amazing person. When he wrote, he was very precise so that it was legible. He could even tie his own shoes in a bow. And he could open a bridge by hand. Absolutely. In 1950, Vero's wooden bridge was replaced by the first Barber Bridge, which had an automatic draw span. So Ben Wood got a job on the Wabasso Bridge, which still had a hand-cranked draw span and also had a house for his family. Daddy asked to be moved up there because he could not fish off this high new bridge, and he needed to fish. What fish we didn't eat, he sold. He kept working on the Wabasso Bridge until his death. He was almost 74 years old. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Each year, nearly 700,000 people visit the Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine. While many of the visitors are aware that Florida was twice a colony of Spain, not everyone understands the place the old structure occupies in the history of North America's oldest city. Bill Dudley talks with a prominent Florida historian with a special interest in one of our most recognizable landmarks. Visitors walk upon the battlements of the Castillo de San Marcos, the oldest masonry fortification in the U.S. University of Florida historian Michael Gannon says he discovered the castle while a high school student in St. Augustine in the 1940s. I used to love to wander about the battlements of the old castle and climb about the guns that faced out to sea. And it was only in later years that I truly understood the importance of the castle. Before ground was broken for the Castillo in 1672, no less than nine wooden forts had stood on the same spot near the city gates. They had been burned to the ground by Francis Drake in 1586, or burned by accidental fire, or rotted away in St. Augustine's water table and rains. None of those forts was really substantial enough to give protection to the citizens of the city. And this became a major problem in 1668 when St. Augustine was raided by an English pirate named Robert Davis, alias Searles. He murdered over 60 people in their beds at night and lay waste to the city. And this only showed the Spaniards how vulnerable they were. Even more worrisome was the founding of the city of Charlestown in 1670, only 250 miles to the north. They knew it would be only a matter of time before the English at Charleston would mount an attack upon St. Augustine in an attempt to wrest the peninsula away from Spain. It became clear a more solid structure must be built. Guided by Timucua Indians, the Spanish turned to nearby Anastasia Island, where six feet below the surface they found coquina shell rock, a spongy type of local limestone made of tiny shells and sand. Slabs of coquina were quarried and barged to the mainland, 
where a workforce of prisoners, Indians, and African slaves from Cuba took 23 years to finish the castle, with walls 16 feet thick at the base, narrowing to 9 feet at their tops, a 40-foot moat, and drawbridge. It was finished off with a waterproof white plaster covering and decorated with a bold red stripe around the top of the walls. The design was basically square, with four jutting diamond-shaped bastions extending from the four corners. And each one of those bastions was a fort. And so individual were the forts that they each bore special names. St. Augustine, St. Charles, St. Peter, and the bastion on the southwest corner, St. Paul. And when you as a soldier were assigned to the castle, you were assigned to a particular bastion. The newly completed fortress was to receive its baptism of fire a few years later. Just as the Spaniards feared, an attack force from Carolina came in November 1702 under the command of Colonel James Moore. 800 Carolina volunteers and Yamasee Indians who were allied with the British at that time. Within the castle walls were the 1,500 citizens of St. Augustine, along with food and water. The moat was drained and used to hold livestock, and all buildings within the distance of a musket shot were burned to provide a clear field of fire. And now the Carolina force surrounds the castle, and Moore sets up his artillery to begin bombarding the walls. He's confident from the beginning that his cannonballs will shatter these stone walls, and so the firing begins. And what happens? To the surprise of Spaniard and Englishmen alike, the walls do not shatter. When the cannonballs hit the walls, the walls simply absorb them. Because the shell rock is still of such resilience, it will not fracture. Some of those cannonballs got stuck in the walls, and at the end of a day's firing, the castle looked like a chocolate chip cookie. At night, the Spanish would pry out the cannonballs and fire them back at the British. It was akin to throwing bowling balls into mud. Uh, the bombardment did no good, whatever. After 50 days, Moore gave up, and his entire force uh, returned to Carolina whence it came. 38 years later, in 1740, the castle survived a siege of 23 days from a much larger force led by Governor James Oglethorpe of Georgia. Once again, the Castillo de San Marcos saved the city and its inhabitants, only to be surrendered peacefully when the Spanish left Florida a few years later. In 1763, as one of the conditions ending the French and Indian War, that Spanish authority withdrew from Florida. The fall of St. Augustine and its castle was determined not on the field of battle, but on a piece of paper signed by diplomats in Paris. Today, the Castillo de San Marcos, its white stucco finish worn away by three centuries of rain and wind, still stands proud. The National Park Service, seeking ways to preserve the structure from further erosion, is looking at plans to cover it with a protective coating of plaster once again. The castle is remarkable in the story of America for the fact that it was twice attacked by large forces, and it twice repulsed those attackers. There was an article in the New York Times Sunday magazine in which the writer foolishly said, Florida has no history like Texas, it has the Alamo. Well, my answer to that is, everybody in the Alamo was killed and conquered, but the Castillo de San Marcos was never conquered and stands today as a, a monument to human ingenuity and courage. Michael Gannon is author of Operation Drumbeat, 
Pearl Harbor Betrayed, and Florida A Short History, published by University Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Be sure to join us again next week, and until then, visit our website at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.